Good morning. Good to be back. Uh, it's been a while since, since I spoke on the first three chapters of Daniel. Um, so I'll, I'll be overviewing that a little bit this morning. Before we begin, let me open in prayer. Father, thank you for this time here today, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. I pray that as we open it today and we look at it and we look at some warnings in the scriptures and just some real truths in Daniel 4 and 5 that you speak to us, that, that we would hear what you have to say, Father, that my words wouldn't get in the way, but rather would hopefully bring out the, the truth of what you've said and that your words would be what's speaking to us this morning. So pray, pray for that, Lord. I pray that our eyes and our ears and our hearts would be open to what you have to say this morning. It's in your name. Amen. Okay, um, so I have spoken on Daniel's one through th- chapter one through three, and we're going to be talking about Daniel four and five today. But before we get into that, um, I want to do something a little bit different. I want us to get into groups of maybe three to four people, because uh, I have a couple questions for you. So you don't have to do too much moving, but and the questions aren't too personal, so don't worry about if you know the person too well. But if you could group up in about three to four people. Um, I got a couple questions for you. All right. So um, before we begin, it might, these questions might seem a little bit out of place, but I, uh, I will do my best to tie them back in. But I think regardless, just the questions alone are, are good for us to, to think about and, and to dwell on and, and to have thoughts towards. So the first question, and if you have something to write with, you can write it down, but I think you'll be able to, to remember it well enough. Um, I want you guys to discuss what it means to become a Christian. So what are the essential aspects of becoming a Christian? So if you were going to tell somebody what has to take place to become a Christian, what would you say to them? Okay, so take like four minutes. Uh, You guys can use any scripture references, if you have, to to back that up, to, to talk about that. And we'll have a discussion here in a minute. But what does it mean to become a Christian. Could be simple, could be a little bit more complicated. I don't know. You guys come up with those answers. So have a little discussion, just about four minutes on that. Repeat the question. Just the, the question one more time, and if you know, you can keep on talking. But just asking, what are the essential aspects of becoming a Christian? So if you were going to explain to somebody what it means to become a Christian, What does it mean to become a Christian? Some of you guys, let's have a discussion now as a a whole group. What you guys talked about, what you think has to take place. What would you explain to someone who didn't know? What would you say? What would you say? First of all, we have to acknowledge that there is a God. Okay, yep. Acknowledging there is a God. So so I think sin, recognizing that we have sin in our life, exposes that there's a God because there's a lawgiver and there's a righteous one. And, and we just kind of stayed in Romans 10, um, where uh, Paul starts out by saying that he desires all the Jews to be saved, and they have a real zeal for God, but they don't have an according to knowledge. They have to have an understanding that, um, you know, they may have had the understanding that it was God, but they didn't acknowledge the Son. In this case, then, we have to acknowledge that we are unrighteous, that we're sinful. And when we do that, we're acknowledging that there is one that's righteous. Yeah. So acknowledgement of sin and an acknowledgement of God. In Romans 10, 9, you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. If we 
Mm. And I think if we unpack that a little bit more, confessing with our mouth that there is a God, so believing that there's God, believing in your heart, so there's a little bit more than just the verbal affirmation of God there, believing in our heart, then you will be saved. And the fact of the resurrection. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's also in that, in that verse. That he was raised from the dead. Yeah. And also, you have to really mean it from the heart. Honestly, mm-hmm. you know, saying, God, I did something wrong. You know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's something that uh, genuinely, that I... We'll see here today when we look into Daniel 4 and 5 that God really cares for the heart. Thank you, Christ. Yeah. So I see that there is a God. Many people might agree with that. But there is a God who is creator of all, who oversees all, who judges all. Secondly, that we are all under condemnation. Romans 2.23, all have sinned that, that God judges and that was the moral of you. Third is that there is no way that we in our own effort can reach heaven because that's where the division comes from. Hindus and Muslims that have a way to reach God. No. And then the book of point is God gave, provided the way and that's the only way. Acts 4.12 there's no God's salvation and no one else. And then to trust that and repent of us and, and believe that he has provided the way and then that, that's where you get the essential of being becoming mm-hmm. And can any of that be left out? I think yeah. a lot of, I mean, it, it, I agree with everything you said. It was just something, too, that you have to go against, like, uh, false doctrines that are out there, like, like Jesus Jesus was God's son, according to, like, Latter-day Saints or whoever. So it's like, you also have to, like, clarify who Jesus is. I think that's the biggest question that surrounds, like, being a Christian. Like, they said whether he's lunatic, whether he's Lord, or what was the other one? Liar. Oh, a liar. So there's three things you have to say, okay, who is Jesus Christ? Who you say he is. I mean, I, you go to that point, and then ultimately it comes down to that question who is he? Hmm. He must be born again. Yeah. I absolutely agree with all that you said, and I think the key point to, to Abe kind of summing that up is I think that all of that has to take place, right? We would agree that those are the idea of becoming a Christian. You can't have Christianity without those fundamental truths. And those are kind of the things that we hold to and we, and we uh, hold really true here at the chapel. I know that as I've been here for the teachings and, and seeing that those are the key aspects of faith. Um, the next question, this we'll spend a little bit shorter time on. Uh, because we're in the Old Testament, I want to just pose this question for us to talk about briefly um, and see what you guys come up with. It's a, I put for the Old Testament, there was not the term Christian. So right, for, for the Old Testament, there was not the term Christian. Was loving God and being accepted into his family any different than it is now? Because uh, you, know, you didn't have Christ. So that just the idea of Christian. Um, so I want you guys to have that discussion. Was there any difference being accepted into God's family. What we just explained how it looks and how it looked then. So what would that be if it looked different? And then how, how is it the same? So just a quick discussion on that. And we'll... Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to think through. So anyway, just take, us, take three minutes or so to discuss that. 
since we're into the Old Testament, let's look at it that way, because using the term Christianity, you know, it got get a little... Good morning. Hey, I did, yeah, all I started off with was asking, what does it mean to be a Christian? We just had to talk about that. And then I said, what about for the Old Testament? How was it different? And, like, because they didn't have the term Christianity, or was it different? And so that's talking about that, and we're about to come back together and talk about that. Yeah. So... What about for the Old Testament, salvation, or to, to, to be accepted into God's family? How was it the same? How was it different? Was it different? Yeah. It always started with acknowledging God, knowing God. I mean, it always started with that. But in the Old Testament, it seems to me that they, they you know, uh, acknowledged God, and then they had to follow his precepts or, you know, obey him. That, that was the, uh, the, the pathway. Yeah. I guess a probing question that I thought with this was, is, and it is kind of tough, but it's something I struggled with, honestly, as looking through this, because I agree with everything it said, but the covering, the covering and the acceptance into, into his family was that, is Christ's blood the only thing that is sufficient, right? In the Old Testament and the New, we talk about the faith, and just thinking about that past, present, and future, that faith of that promise hope, that even though we are in the new covenant today, still only Christ's blood could be the covering for sins, and so that past, present, future covering, something that I've, yeah. Yeah, all the sin that's ever been forgiven was forgiven because of the blood of Christ, Right. but they didn't have to understand that right. in the Old Testament. They had to believe what God had revealed to them up to that point, which in the time of Daniel, you have to believe that the God of the Jews mm-hmm. is the one true God. You can't just be a believer in God most high. You have to say, aha, uh-huh, it's the God of the Jews. That's what's been revealed to this point. <coughs> what about other aspects that 
it, Abe shared too, just trying to probe us, think a little deeper. I, I promise that I'll try to tie this in. What about the aspect of sin? And there. And even the, um, I know we talked about one of the key things of becoming a Christian is the acknowledgement of sin. And I think that, does that hold true then for the Old Testament? Yeah. Yeah. Right, and they're, they're not saved, right? I think we'd agree on that, right? The demons acknowledge God. Um, and are not saved. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, are there any other thoughts on this? I think just getting our mind. I know that's half of the time already, but getting our mind thinking and probed with these aspects as we take a look at at King Nebuchadnezzar today. Yes, yeah, Steve. about is that the Holy Spirit was working back then, even though it wasn't very visible, he was working and drawing people to himself. Yeah. And, and so it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It didn't just have to be in the Jewish mind, mm. it could be others. Well, uh, thank you for those thoughts. I appreciate it. Um, they're good. They're some adding to thoughts that I had, too, and some of the scriptures that I had put there were already mentioned. So um, we'll go ahead and move on into Daniel. And just, just to recap, Daniel's one, Daniel chapter 1 through 3. Yeah, if you'd like to move back, feel free to do that now. Um, Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3. Uh, I talked about those in, in a series of two weeks, back to back. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with some other Jews, were taken away from Jerusalem, a place that represented uh, God's people. Right? In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was representing God's people. And, and Babylon was a powerful kingdom of the time during the time of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar was leading the charge there, and he had this plan to take the brightest, youngest Jews out of Jerusalem and bring them back and use them for his own good. And so Babylon was a, a powerful nation, a nation that worshipped many gods, a polytheistic nation. Uh, they didn't worship one god and one god alone. But if you worshipped the god of the Bible, that was true. And so for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood out in a place that worshipped many gods by worshipping only, only one god. Um, and we see that in chapter 1, Daniel chose not to partake in the food and drink uh, because of convictions that he had from the Lord, and the Lord um, honored him in that and gave him greater strength than 
than those who were partaking in, in the choice meats. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they chose not to bow down to the idols that the king had set up. And, and God chose to honor them as well by entering into the fire and, and saving them. And so um, a key point to that was that, that, that God had sent them into Babylon. God told them not to reject going. Um, God wanted Daniel and his friends there. And, and I think that was true because God, God desires us to be in places like Daniel and his friends where, where Christ's name needs to be known as Christians today. Right? But back then, God, God wanted himself to be known to this people group of Babylon. And when you think about King Nebuchadnezzar and what he experienced through those first three chapters, we start to see a revelation of his own understanding of who God is. And so King Nebuchadnezzar may have heard of the God of the Jews before, but had not quite experienced him. I'm making this assumption. Had not quite experienced him in the way that he had when, when Daniel and his friends came to Babylon. And we see kind of a, we see a progression happening through proclamations in the first three chapter from the king. The king begins by after Daniel interprets the dream in chapter 2, God, he calls God the revealer of mysteries. Um, and, at the, and so he's starting to realize God's power, God's might. He's acknowledging that God exists. The God of Daniel is the revealer of mysteries. Leading into the revelation after this grand event of God coming down and saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by entering into the fire. Not just letting them not be burned, but entering into the fire with them. And King Nebuchadnezzar witnesses this and, and proclaims that there's no other God that can save in this way. Right, so now, not only is King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging that God that is a God of the Jews, but that the God of the Jews is unique and that he is special in a way. So King Nebuchadnezzar is showing us his heart, his revelation, these things that are happening in his mind we're seeing being proclaimed by his lips. Um, he's witnessing these things happening. But at this point, I started to think, I started to question all these things. You know, the, the things that we discussed this morning, I started to wonder about King Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm not sure why the Lord took me this direction, but as I was praying and thinking about this and reading these chapters, I felt like he was really pushing me on this. And so I kind of struggled through preparing this, just to be honest. But um, and the, the direction I felt like he was pushing me was a tough one, just thinking about the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. After these first three chapters, I kept feeling that question, was King Nebuchadnezzar's heart a heart after God? Um, he had seen and witnessed incredible miracles. He had seen and witnessed incredible miracles, even proclaiming that God is the God, the God of the Bible is unique. Um, but did he have a heart that loved God? And I think in chapter 4, God brings to light a real danger that can take place in our hearts. A danger for the Christian, a danger for the non-Christian. Things that can separate us from God. Um, we're given an, and, and just to back that up even more, we're given an example in the New Testament of people who proclaimed God who outwardly looked like they trusted God, who did what God was asking them to do. You guys know who that group of people is that I'm talking about. 
potentially, right? People that followed God's laws or looked like it, but um, really didn't have a heart after God. The Pharisees um, and the New Testament. And, and we, I think we can be even more confident that that's true, that there is people that can proclaim God but not have a heart for him because Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Like he, wasn't, he wasn't taking it easy on them. Right? These people proclaimed God. They tithed. They fasted. They prayed. They outwardly looked like they were following all of which God was calling them to. But yet, a whitewashed tomb, what does that mean? I mean, it's they're, they're dead on the inside. They don't have life, life for God, life that... That, that loves God. Um, so what was keeping the Pharisees from having faith in God? They certainly were acknowledging the Lord with their actions and with their lips. I, and, and even for myself, we may, and I felt a lot of conviction by this word for myself. We may, I may study God's word. I oftentimes learn about God's word. But, but does that mean that it's having an impact on my heart into an intimate relationship? Am I letting it be a position of, of head knowledge, or am I truly taking the time to let that word sink in? And now I, I know that God calls me to be disciplined in, in being with him, but um, am I just trying to take this as, as a point of study, or am I really letting it impact my heart? Um, all, and I, all the head knowledge in the world could not save the Pharisees, and in, I'm going to talk about 4 and 5 today, hopefully. But you'll see in Daniel 5 that all the knowledge of God to King Nebuchadnezzar's son in chapter 5, he had all the knowledge that he could have ever wanted to know about God, and, and that was not enough to save him. Um, God has and always will be a God who desires a deep and intimate relationship with you and with me. His greatest commandment, paraphrased, is to love him. God is after our heart. Um, he wants the love of our heart. And in, in the chapter 4 of Daniel, we're given insight to the heart of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we can see that God's not pleased with where King Nebuchadnezzar's heart is, even though he's, he's praying, praising him with his lips. So chapter 4 begins. I, you guys could probably correct me if I'm wrong. I, I looked it up. I tried looking at different sources. It looks like I found it was about 20 years after is kind of the, uh, the idea that chapter 4 is taking place about 20 years after the fiery furnace. So time has passed since, since the king has witnessed this great miracle. Um, and it begins, I'm going to read verse two, 2 and 3. And so we can just see even more the king's proclamation of, of who God is. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. So certainly an acknowledgement of, of God. And I'm not trying to make a stance today on whether I think King Nebuchadnezzar is saved at this point or not. Um, I can't tell you, uh, I, I, or you know, if he's ever saved. I, I don't want that to, to become the discussion. But uh, just there seems like there is a lot of acknowledgement of God, and without a doubt, God is real to King Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Uh, but there's something that's keeping him from from having an intimate relationship with the Lord, even when he's acknowledging God. 
As the chapter continues, the king has another dream that he can't interpret. And as old habits would have it, he doesn't go to Daniel first, right? You would think at, at this point, King Nebuchadnezzar, with all the proclamations he has, and knowing that this God, as he has called him before, the God of Daniel, is, is unique and powerful, you would think that he would go straight to Daniel with a dream. But he pulls in other magicians and enchanters and, and, and seeks out their understanding of this dream. And perhaps uh, he was doing that because he was afraid of what the dream's answer really was, and he knew that Daniel would give him the, the right answer. I don't know, because the dream doesn't seem too complicated as you're, as you're reading it. Um, but Daniel goes, uh, that dream, um, Daniel goes on to interpret it, and he tells the king that the king is going to become like an animal for a period of seven, and, um, meaning like a complete period of time. The, the king would become like a wild animal living with the beasts of the field, and he would be stripped of his dominion, dominion over the kingdom. And this would all take place until, until the king realized that the Most High God is sovereign over all of the nations. God knew Nebuchadnezzar's heart, and God graciously humbled the king exactly how the king needed to be humbled, by stripping the king of his power. In this aspect, the, king, the king's pride was in his nation, and God knew that. Um, but God knew exactly where pride le- lied in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And he knows for each one of us where it has and where it does lie in our hearts. So I'm going to read verse 28 through 32. So the dream had just been given, been interpreted, all of that. And so now it says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal place of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon, the great which I have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the words was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the fields. You will be as grass, or you will be given grass to eat like cattle, And seven periods of time will pass over until you realize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on him whoever he wishes. So God made Daniel become like a beast. Nebuchadnezzar, thank you, become like a beast. Um, Was it a curse? I, I don't think so. I think for, for God to do that to Nebuchadnezzar was perhaps the greatest miracle that he had done to Nebuchadnezzar yet. Um, he was humbling Nebuchadnezzar. I thank God that he chose to humble my heart. Um, the greatest gift God can give us We talked about becoming a Christian, right? One of the key aspects was humility. Recognition of sin. Recognition of our lowly state before a mighty, powerful, awesome, wonderful Savior. 
And that's exactly what the king was lacking to this point. Again, I'm not talking about whether he had salvation or not, but he still did not recognize just how wonderful God was in light of how insignificant he was. Um, I remember being in that position. I still actually struggle with that position each day. It's not, it's not just a coming to Christ thing. Um, but, but I do thank God that, you know, once in him, we're in him forever. So there was a time in my life, and for Christians in the room, there's a time for, in all of our lives where we've been in that position where God has had to humble our hearts to take us to a lowly state to realize just how insignificant we are in this place, but how significant we are to God. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful thing that, that even though King Nebuchadnezzar had to suffer for seven years, what, how did he come out of it? Well, he came out of it by lifting his eyes up to heaven and recognizing that God was a powerful God and that God was the God to be worshipped. Um, Yeah, God, God wasn't going to have King Nebuchadnezzar live the way that he was. God was pursuing him. And we see that. God was pursuing the king. He took the mightiest man of the time and brought him to a lowly state. I thank God that he did that to me too. And it is in that lowly state that we're not left thinking, wow, God is just a powerful God. But we have the truth today of Christianity. We have that beautiful, wonderful truth that when we're brought to that place, we can see just how loving God is. Right? It's, it's not left in our sin. And thank God that we're not. Um, to become a Christian, our proud hearts must be humbled. Pride tells us we are worthy on our own accord. But the gospel tells us we are worthy on his accord. We must become less and he must become more. We know that God opposes the proud. There's many scriptures in that and gives grace to the humble. And I think just as, as I was reading through this, there was another passage that kept coming to, to mind. And I, I thought about my relationship with God and just the intimacy that's there. Um, and this idea of pride can, can get in the way so much of having an intimate relationship with God. Um, I thought about the, the prodigal son and, and the older brother. I don't know why it came to mind. and I've heard it used in other lights, and I'm sure people have spoke on it in, in pride before, talking about the older brother and humility with the younger. But, but I hadn't, and I felt like God was just pushing this on me. Uh, thinking about that story of the prodigal son where there's two brothers, and, and the younger brother leaves. He takes his portion, and, and he leaves. And at that point... It looks like the older brother's got a good relationship with the father, and the younger brother's almost looks non-existent. Um, but but we know what happens. That younger brother, well aware of all the hurt and all the shame that he caused to his father, comes back. And before he can even get out, he's got his thing that he's going to say. But before he can even get it out, we know that the king, or that the father comes and embraces him. And imagine the love that that son must have felt by his father in that moment. Why? Why would it have been much deeper? Because he knew. He knew he was undeserving. He knew he didn't deserve it. The humility that was there with that brother led him 
to experience God's love on a deep, intimate relationship. Um, and that's something that we can have every day. You know, that's something we can have every day. I find myself thinking about the older brother sitting there. It's like he, he had that relationship with God all I mean, with his father all along. It wasn't broken. It wasn't broken. It was there. He lived with his father. But where was the intimacy? Where was the intimacy? That it, was, it was pride that, that kept him unwilling to see that he was just as much loved by his father as the other son. Um, and I think God wants us to live in that reality every day. Our, our hearts are called to be humbled. You know, we, <laughs> we're loved by God, um, but <laughs> we can experience that love when we express that humility and we can and we can have that wonderful grace and revelation that the that the younger brother has i it's interesting i you know, the gospel preaches that that we are unworthy and he is worthy but he has made us to be worthy through the blood of of Christ's son and i think as i as i live to be a christian it's i know what god wants life to look like, right? I learn more and more about what holiness looks like because I'm, I'm learning more and more about who God is. And the reality is, as I'm learning more and more, you know, I, I remember this from young life. There's probably many different places, but as I'm learning more and more about who God is, I really should be seeing more and more of my sin and then the cross that's connecting that gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as I grow in a relationship with God, just seeing more and more how much he has covered me. Um, but oftentimes I can fool myself thinking as I'm learning about holiness and, and godliness that as I'm spending more and more time with God, he is changing me. He is sanctifying me because the Spirit's in me. And what I think that that means that I'm like, you know, growing up here with him and, and uh, I can start to, to let that pride take away from my view of just how wonderful his grace is. Um, I know that's a, that's a real danger for me. And as I was looking, C.S. Lewis said that pride, can, pride is the cancer of Christians. And so I want to encourage you to think about in your heart where pride might be existent. And I know it's hard. I know sometimes it's, it's hard for us personally to pick it out. Maybe your spouse, if you're married, could pick it out easier for you. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, sometimes pride keeps us from seeing our pride, right? Um, but it, it's, it's there. We still live in our flesh. And, it, and why, why even care about it? I think because it's, it's taking away. Pride keeps us from, from that relationship that God desperately wants with us, right? That intimacy, that intimacy. And I'm not saying that it keeps you from salvation. Only Christ's blood, right? Now, if pride is never dealt with, and so I think that as we're, I'm going pretty late, so I'm just going to not even read the passage. Sorry about that. From Daniel 5. But what happens is the king's son is, is well aware of all of this knowledge, everything that happened to his father. But instead of humbling himself, he's throwing parties. He's using uh, things that were meant by God to be used for the tabernacle as just whatever in his party. You know, he's just kind of not taking any humility here and just uh, doing whatever he wants. 
And, and what happens? He's killed. Right? God just, that very night, gives him a dream. Daniel tells him what's going to happen, and he just ends it for that son. And, and for the non-Christian, if pride in our heart is never dealt with, if we're never humbled before God, then our fate is the same. So I, I pray for you in this room, if you've never looked closely at who you are in sight of who God is, that you would dwell on that today. Uh, because we really aren't that important, but, but we are to God. And that's the beauty of it. Um, God loves us. God gave his son for us. And God wants a relationship with you. And, and for the Christian, I'll end here because almost out of time. But for the Christian, be real, be honest. Don't say you're doing well if you're not. Ask for prayer. Seek God in your weakness. Do not try to worry to put on the image of someone better. It's pride, and God hates pride. Live in humility and experience the wonderful grace God offers for you today. So, those are the thoughts that I've had from Daniel. Sorry I don't have any time for extra, but I'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for your love for me, in spite of who I am, and uh, thank you that you pursue me. Thank you that you changed me. Thank you that one day we'll all have perfect bodies, God. Um, and thank you that, that you give us your word to teach us, to grow us, to shape us. Pray that we'd hold fast to it today and every day, Lord, that the gospel wouldn't just be once and done reality, but we would live in it daily, that you would remind us daily as we need it each and every day. Thank you for this morning. It's in your name.